Our scripture reading this morning is Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is God's word. Well, good morning, first of Anne. It is great to be back. I tell you, worshiping here brings back a lot of memories. Uh, in fact, I was uh, remembering sitting as a little kid squirming as Earl Stevens would preach. We weren't in this room. We were, I guess, in the fellowship hall in those, remember those hard plastic chairs? Those of you that were here, they were the worst chairs in the world. But uh, we sat in them and uh, the years with Earl Stevens and then Jay Letty and then Dr. Lipfin. And the first job I ever had was at First of Ann. Uh, as a pastor, uh, working with Brake under Rich McGee, and so thankful for his mentorship. And probably every time I come in this room, the memory that comes back the most is uh, a little over 30 years ago. My bride and I got married on this stage, so uh, I will always be appreciative of this church and its investment in me and in my family. As we uh, look at God's Word today in the book of Jonah, we look at a passage, anytime you pe- preach on a passage like Jonah, It can be difficult because it's so popular. It's such a well-known story within culture. Now, part of the problem, though, is we often mix Jonah up a little bit with Pinocchio. And somewhere along the way, we picture Jonah being swallowed by Monstro the Whale with his friend Jiminy Cricket and, and all that. But if you know the story, Jonah was a prophet of God who'd been given a command by God, and he just didn't want to do it. God told him, go 550 miles to the northeast. Go and take the message to the people of Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, the great world empire, that frankly were the most despicable people on the planet at the time. Cruel, precious people that would destroy cultures. They were the enemy of Israel. And if you know the story, what did Jonah do? Instead of going 550 miles to the northeast, he tried to go 2,500 miles to the west, to the edge of the earth. And God, in his providence, gives him a 
near-death experience, a slow-moving near-death experience that you would think would change Jonah and change his behavior. God uses it to get his attention. He certainly changes his behavior. He doesn't change his heart through it. You know, as I was thinking about Jonah's near-death experience, I was thinking about my own. The closest time I ever came to death, Lee and I lived in Bangkok. And if you've ever been to Bangkok, this is the mid-90s especially. It was a city of over 10 million people, no major transportation system, so the traffic was a nightmare. And the best way to get around, if you really wanted to get somewhere quick, were these motorcycle taxis. You know, these guys, they always had vests on. You'd go negotiate a fare with them. They'd give you a helmet, you jump on the motorcycle, and then go. And they would just take you through the city. It was great for getting places. The bad news is people often lost their lives doing it. They would drive so crazy through it. And I had one guy that I would go many times. He'd take me across town. And I remember one day we were close to our little apartment where we lived. And we're on the street. It's this narrow alley, two lanes. In Bangkok, you drive on the other side of the street. And, and it was gridlocked, just bumper to bumper. There was something obstructing our lane ahead. And, and then we noticed as we both kind of leaned out, no traffic was coming. There was something obstructing the other lane even further ahead. And so the driver did what you do on a motorcycle. You take advantage of it. He got in the other lane. And we start going, and I'm thinking, this is why I ride motorcycle taxis. Till I look ahead and I see that our lane is clear now. And coming toward us is a literal Mack truck. And so when the driver goes to get back in, the traffic is so gridlocked. There's no space. And it's such a narrow alley. There's no room in the lane. And then he goes over to the other side. And I I held on because I I just assumed we're going to have to bail out into one of the shops. It was so tight. There was a little dip that went down. So I'm preparing. We're going to have to go into one of these shops, into the people. That's the only thing we can do. But some point, he looked ahead, and he thought to himself, instead of stopping, if we went really, really fast, we might be able to get back in before the Mack truck gets to our lane. And I'll still remember the sensation as I'm on the motorcycle, and then I feel the brake going, and then he guns it. And he starts screaming through the gears. We were in second gear, and then third gear, and then fourth gear. And the motorcycle's going fast, and it's all going by so fast. And I got so scared, I just started screaming. I was like, ah! And to make it worse, he starts screaming, ah! We're both screaming as it goes. And I see the truck, and it's literally right there. And I picture myself in my coffin with Mac across my cheek. And he pulls back in at the last second. And I said, remember, he pulled over on the side of the road, and, and I had tears coming down. I was so scared at that point. Finally, I got my senses. I started hitting him on the helmet. I was like, that was stupid. And he's like, sorry, sorry. And we pulled back up to our apartment. I take off the helmet. I give it to him, and he smiles at me, and he says, no charge. <laughs> it's like, no charge, except a few years of my life in that moment. Now, here's the interesting thing. People that go through near-death experiences, you'd think it would change their behavior. You would think I'd never take another motorcycle taxi again. And I probably gave them up for about a week. And then I was back again. I read an article of people that experience cardiac experiences, heart attacks. And you would think after you experience that, you would change your diet and your behavior. About 85% of them go back to the exact same lifestyle. You would think if you spent three days and three nights 
and the belly of a great fish. You would get what God's trying to teach you. But Jonah doesn't. Oh, he obeys. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches one sermon. From what we can tell, he goes into the city, he preaches one sermon. He says, you have 40 days, and then judgment's coming. It's the world's worst evangelistic campaign ever, except for the fact God was moving. And this revival breaks out in the city from the king all the way down to the lowest people. And you would think at that moment, if you're seeing this despicable people suddenly coming to God, if you're a prophet of God, you'd get excited about it. But Jonah's not, is he? So we saw in the passage, he goes and he says to God, he's exceedingly angry. He's fit to be tied. My mother used to use that phrase. I never knew what it meant, except that she was angry. Stay out of the way. He's exceedingly angry. And he says to God, I knew this would happen. I knew you would do this. Notice what he's pointing out in verse 2. He wasn't worried about what the Ninevites would do. He was worried about what God would do because he knew that the character of God would result in the mercy of God. And he describes, read with me in verse 2 as he describes it. He said, for I knew that you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. He describes God's character. He said, I knew this is how you would act. I knew this is what you are like. Now, as he's saying this, these aren't just terms that Jonah picked out of the air. Like, I, I, you know, I'll just describe God in a few ways. Yeah, you're gracious. You're... This would be something as an Israelite, you would be taught this from childhood. In fact, this verse, this description of God is one of the most quoted in the Old Testament. You'll see it in Jonah. You see it in Psalm 103. You see it in Ezra. You see it in Nehemiah. The first place you see it is in Exodus 34, where the children of God had experienced that mercy. After God had brought them out of Egypt, remember they went to Sinai, Moses goes up on the mountain, he's receiving the law of God. While he's up there, the people decide, you know what, we need to worship like everybody else, so we need an image that represents our God. They convince Aaron, Moses' brother, to melt all the gold, make a golden calf, and Moses comes down from the mountain after receiving the law of God, and they're worshiping the golden calf. Remember, he breaks the Ten Commandments. He goes back up on the mountain, and as God talks to Moses, he says, I'm done with them. In fact, Moses, I'm just going to wipe them out and we'll start over with you. I'll take you in the land. We'll just start with the new people. And Moses prays on behalf of the people of Israel. And God forgives. And when he forgives, this is where we get this description of God the first time. And, and he describes the character of God. You know, often people, I'll hear them say, oh, I love the God of the New Testament. I don't really like that Old Testament God. And what I would say to him is, you've missed who God is in the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament, by the way, is the God of the Old Testament. And this is the most repeated description of him. Look how it describes him. He says, you are gracious. It's the Hebrew word, hanum. It's only used 13 times in the Bible, and it's never used of anyone except God. Only God has this kind of graciousness. He says that you are merciful or compassionate. It's the word to describe the care of a womb for a baby, the care of a mother for a baby. You're the kind of God that has that kind of compassion for people. 
You're, you're slow to anger. You're not a God who, who flies off the handle quickly. We give you every reason to be angry every day at us, but you're so patient with us. You're so slow to anger. He uses the word abounding in love. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And this would be one that's very distinct to the people of Israel because this is the covenant love. This is the love they thought was just reserved for them as a people. This chesed. In the New Testament, we describe it as this agape love, this sacrificial love. He says, you've got the kind of love that sacrifices on the behalf of people. And the final term he uses you're one who relents from sending calamity. This is the one he knew especially. I knew that if I preached to them and they responded, you're the kind of God, instead of punishing them the way they deserve, you'll give them a way of forgiveness. And the reality is, Jonah doesn't want them to experience God's mercy. Isn't it ironic? The very mercy and grace they've experienced he doesn't want to give it. But, but the reality is, guys, Jonah's not alone in this. You'll see the same character. It shows up time and time again, especially for religious people. This is what the Pharisees struggled with. In fact, remember the story of the prodigal son? It's about two brothers. Not just the one who went and lived in sin, but the older brother who always did the right thing. And at the end of the story, you see the older brother, he comes back and he says, wait, what are you, you're, you're having a party? You're going to let him come back? You're going to forgive him? He doesn't deserve this. I've been doing the right thing all this time. And you're going to do that for him? It, it, it's interesting to me. God does not need grace at all. He never needs it. But he loves to give it. We desperately need grace. But we don't like to give it. Especially to people that we don't think deserve it. Especially to people that may have hurt us. Especially to people that, that we just look at and we go, they're just beyond the pale of the mercy of God. And we'd rather, like Jonah, stay angry with them. Instead of seeing God move in that way. And this is hard on a broad scale. It's even harder on a personal scale. And I don't say this lightly because some of you, you've got somebody in your life, they deeply wounded you. They deeply hurt you. And, and extending this kind of forgiveness, it doesn't mean that you just overlook and God's calling you to overlook the hurt they did in your life. Uh, you may have to keep healthy boundaries back up with them. But it does mean there's a freedom that comes when you embrace the heart of God and you're willing to extend grace like he does. You know, I've always loved Corey Ten Boom. Uh, I don't know if you read her story, The Hiding Place, and just this remarkable woman that God used, she and her family who hid Jewish people in Holland in their house until the Nazis found them and they were sent to a concentration camp because of it. And her parents were killed she and her sister Betsy in the camp at Ravensbrück, they experienced the humiliation, the horrors of a concentration camp. She watched her sister waste away until she died there. And post-war, Corey found herself back in 1947, she was in Germany, and she went to preach of God's grace, of God's mercy, of his forgiveness. And she was speaking at a church. She was downstairs in a basement speaking at a church. And one of her favorite expressions was that God will take your sins and throw them to the bottom of the ocean. They're gone. 
And as she shared it, she finished, and she saw a gentleman walking toward her. He was wearing a, a brown overcoat, and as he came toward her, suddenly her mind flashed. He wasn't in a brown overcoat. He was in a blue uniform. He had been a guard at Ravensbrook. She saw him there with his riding crop and the cruelty. She started remembering everything from the camp, the bodies that were piled up, the clothing that had been discarded, the humiliation in front of the guards the death of her sister. He walked up to her and he said, Fraulein, I very much appreciated your talk. Especially the part where God takes our sins and throws them to the bottom of the ocean. I was at Ravensbrook too. She didn't say anything. She thought, yes, I know. He said, I did horrible things, but God has forgiven me. I've become a Christian. Fraulein, I'd like for you to forgive me too. And he stuck out his hand. And in that moment, Corey wrestled with all the emotions that would come of all that he had done wrong. Could she extend forgiveness the way she was teaching other people to? It's a lot easier to teach this, by the way, than to live it. And in that moment, she said, I knew that forgiveness was a choice, not an emotion. And she chose to forgive. And she reached out her hand. And she said even in the moment, she could feel the spirit flowing forgiveness to her. That what she did by action actually came from the heart as well. See, Jonah's not there yet. In fact, in verse 4, it's interesting. God asked Jonah a question. If you look at it, he just kind of throws it out there. And he says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Anytime in scripture you see God ask a question, pay attention. God never asks questions because he doesn't know the answer. He knows everything. He asks questions to help us process our hearts. And he looks at Jonah, it's almost a Dr. Phil moment, where he looks at him and he says, hey, how's that anger working out for you? Is that working well for you there, Jonah? And notice Jonah's done answering. He just storms off. Sets up a little tent outside the city, waits and watches and hopes. Here's what he's hoping. He's hoping, yes, they're getting it right now, but 40 days is a long time. They won't keep it up. This repentance won't last, and maybe I'll get to see some good judgment after all. And so he sits out there angry in his little tent outside the city. Now, again, let me remind you, this is the prophet of God. This is the man of God. He's getting to experience one of the great movements of God on this planet in the city. He's getting to see God change people's hearts and lives. And instead of being in the city, being right in the middle of it, being there discipling people and pouring into them and telling them more about the God that they're turning to, he's so angry he'd rather be outside of it. This amazing movement. You know, one of the things I love about living in the Bay Area is it's so multinational and multicultural. And we, we have people in San Jose and New York kind of go back and forth of the most multicultural cities in, in the U.S. And so because of that, we have people from every country in our church. And so as I've preached to Jonah before, or preached to the Old Testament, you know, a lot of times the Assyrians are the bad guys. And you talk about the wicked Assyrians and that. And finally, had a group came forward in the church and they said, have you ever studied the Assyrian history of the Assyrian Christian church? And I was like, frankly, no. We have a little Assyrian congregation that meets on our campus. 
And it's fascinating, not only in Jonah's time, but especially after Christ, the Assyrian people have been some of the most faithful followers of Jesus Christ. They've been some of the most persecuted people. Even today in Iran, the Assyrian church is so persecuted. And and it's amazing history as you read through it, this movement of what God has done through this people, of real life change in it. But Jonah doesn't care about that. In fact, to bring the story into just vivid focus, God moves again, and he grows a little plant overnight. And Jonah's sitting under the plant. He's got his little booth. He's sitting under the plant. And and the text even says he's exceedingly glad about this plant. You talk about an emotional roller coaster. This guy is exceedingly angry. Now he's exceedingly glad. And he's sitting under his plant, and then God appoints a worm. And the worm comes and kills the plant. It's always interesting to me. The whale gets a lot of press in Jonah. Worm never gets told very much. But it's pretty amazing still. The worm comes, kills the plant overnight. And then God appoints an east wind. You read through the story, and and I'd encourage you sometimes you're reading through Jonah. Notice how many times it says God appoints. He, He appoints a storm. He appoints a great fish. He appoints a plant. He appoints a wind. He appoints a worm. Folks, God can control our circumstances when he wants to get our attention. And maybe you're in a season of life that you look at it and you go, I don't know why this keeps happening to me. You might want to step back and go, God, are you doing something here that you want to teach me something? And just ask him honestly in it. And the plant dies and Jonah's had it. He's exasperated. He's so angry. And notice again, as he's there, I love how God talks to him. Look at me in verse 8. But Jonah, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He asked him again, how's this anger doing for you, Jonah? He said, yes, I do well to be angry. Yes. As a matter of fact, God, yes, I like my anger very, very much. And then he throws this out, angry enough to die. Now, I'll give him credit. At least he's honest with God. And God looks at him and he says, you pity the plant, which you didn't labor. You didn't, you didn't work for it. You have nothing invested in it. You didn't make it grow. It came up one night and it's gone in one night. You have no history with this plant, Jonah. You had one stinking day with the plant that you never grew. And you're grieving and angry over it. And I'm looking at a city, and he describes it, 120,000 people who don't know their right or left. Commentators are divided. It's either 120,000 people that were in the city proper. It's probably just speaking about the children in the city alone. Should make it a city of 500,000 plus. He says, I'm looking at a city full of people. And even the animals. I'm looking at living creatures and living lives. And that's what I care about. And you're torqued about a plant? Are you serious, Jonah? And then the story ends. Like that, he's gone. And you look at it, if you're the reader of it, you go, wait, wait, wait. It ends, it stops. Where's the resolution moment? 
When does Pinocchio become a boy? Because he learned his lesson. When does the Grinch's heart kind of grow three sizes that day? And he goes down with the Ninevites and they sing Wahoo Foray in the middle of the town square. Why don't we get that moment? And, and there's a reason the story ends so abruptly. Um, you'll see the same thing in the book of Mark. It ends very abruptly. And it's by design to force us to wrestle with the same issues. Instead of reaching resolution, because if you had a resolution and it says, oh, and Jonah learned his lesson that way, day and he left and he had a better attitude about all of it, it'd be very easy for us to look at this and go, well, that was an interesting story about that guy way back then that went through it. But see, Jonah, who wrote the book, from best we can tell, leaves it at this point and he looks pretty bad in the process. Because he wants you and me to wrestle with the same issues. He wants us to look at our hearts. Maybe our attitudes. And so as we finish out, I'd just like to ask you a few questions that I'm asking myself as well. Maybe the first question as you look at this, I'll just ask it honestly. How's your anger working for you? And the reason I say that, in, in 30 years of pastoring, over the last couple of years, I, I've never seen the church this divided, this angry, so many issues. And, and I would just ask, how's that working for you? You like your anger? And you may look at it and go, yes, I do, because it's righteous anger. And there is righteous anger. There, there's, there's no sin in being angry, and some things should make us angry because they make God angry. But here's what I would warn you. Scripture says, be angry and do not sin. But then Paul says, don't let the sun go down on it either. There's a time limit on our anger. As humans, there's an expiration date. Like milk, it goes bad in us. It just does. And it's one of the things that separates divinity from humanity. It's one of the ways that God and his character He's amazing in that he has the ability to hold divine anger and it doesn't corrupt his love. But only God can do that. And so he looks at you and me and, and as we look at issues and things that should get us upset and things that may make us angry and things that are wrong in the world in it, there comes a place where he looks at us and he says, yeah, you've got to give that to me now. I can hold that. You can trust me with that. You can trust I'm going to make all things right. But with other people especially, if you don't look at them with the eyes of grace, with the eyes of hope, with the eyes of the kingdom, that anger can start souring every part of life, even your spiritual life. And so God says, why don't you trust me with that? And trust I'll make it right. The second question I'd ask is, have you excluded anyone from God's mercy or grace? Is there anybody out there that you look at, and maybe just even at a heart level, that you look at them and maybe it's division racially, maybe it's division politically, maybe it's division ideology, 
And, and trust me, we, I mean, we live, San Jose is right there in the Bay Area. So we, we experience everything in spades with it. And you see it, and it can be in your face and that. And there's days you just get weary with some of it. But you have to check the heart and go, wait, that's why we're here. These people need Jesus. Of course they think that way. Of course they act like that. Of course they vote like that. Of course they do. Whatever it is they look at, no matter where you are in it, that you look at people and you go, oh, I'm so tired of what they're doing. It's just a great reminder to go, oh, they need God's mercy and grace. And folks, if God can change the people of Nineveh, if God can work through the Assyrian nation throughout history of people that have stood for him, there is no one you know that is beyond the pale of God's grace and his mercy. And I think that's as believers, especially those of us who want to be faithful to the word. We have to check our hearts. Final question I'd ask is, is there anything in your life that you value more than other people? At the core issue... Jonah valued his comfort. Jonah valued his plant. Jonah valued his heritage. Jonah valued his nation. Jonah valued his history. Jonah valued all these things. And God looks at him and says, Jonah, here's what I value. I value people. I value their eternal lives. I value the fact they don't know even right from left. And so I sent you to bring the good news and bring the message. I mean, if I'm honest, I've got my little plants too that I like. Maybe we all like. We love the little plant of money. If I can live in the plant of financial shade, I've got some security there financially, ooh, I'm happy. Or maybe reputation. Some of you, man, if you get enough likes, ooh, life is good. How many did I get? Oh, yeah. How many people are following me? And we live in the shade of the reputation. I'll be honest, probably my plant the most is my time. I have very little time, so I don't want to spend it on anybody else. And, and to actually reach out to my neighbors, to actually reach out to people who are far from God and develop relationship with them and go through the long process of loving them like God would love them, Take sacrifice. But here's the reality, guys. One day in eternity, the only thing that we look around that will still be here, God will create a new heavens and new earth. People last for eternity. And people need Jesus. And people will never experience him unless the people of God reflect the character of God who's compassionate and gracious, who relents, who, who gives his sacrificial love that is expressed in the greatest way through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. People need to know the Lord. And if there was ever a time for the people of God to reflect the character of God, it's now. So maybe this popular story of Jonah 
still has a lesson for you and me as well as we look at our own hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for what he did on the cross. We thank you that you are a God who loves to forgive. Lord, in the same way that we have experienced it, I pray that we would extend it. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that models to the world your character, that they would want to know you because of what they experience with us. Lord, I thank you for this church. I pray that you would bless it mightily. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.